Welcome to the Spokane County EMS Podcast. Your source for educational content for EMS providers in Spokane County. The views expressed in this podcast represents the sole opinions of the host and guests and should not replace guidelines as outlined in the Spokane County EMS Protocol or guidelines as outlined by the Washington State Department of Health or your local protocols. As always, proceed with caution. All right, welcome to the first version of the Spokane County EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Joel Edminster. And I'm Dr. Micah Ding. And today, to get things started, we're going to talk about ketamine. Part of the reason that we wanted to discuss this topic is, uh, one, it's a relatively new drug, and we're beginning to see an increasing use of it by providers in the region, uh, some of it appropriate some of it inappropriate. And this is a great opportunity, I think, to use this venue as a way to address some of the errors and reiterate how to use it correctly. So within the last two years, this has been a new drug for us. Um, And specifically in Spokane County, our indications are pain control, our uh, induction agent for optimal sequence intubation, then also for excited delirium. So we'll discuss each one of those. one of the things that's made this a hot topic in the um, is the current. I don't know what's the right way to say this, uh, Micah. The the current media uh, environment or the current um, political environment, or I don't know the American stage. Yeah, there's a lack of understanding. I feel of this medication, particularly within the media and those that are not familiar with it, because. You know, historically speaking, this this is a a horse tranquilizer, right, and a and a potential uh, drug of abuse, with many indications, as you already mentioned. So, I feel it's uh, kind of misinterpreted on on how we apply it to patients. Um, and then there's a lot of hot topics, particularly when it surrounds excited delirium, which I know we'll get into later, um, and the application for a, a chemical restraint in those situations. I think it's I think it behooves us to kind of clarify when it's safe to use this medication, when it's not safe to use it. Uh, and and that'll be the focus of today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about some of the position statements of our professional societies, just so we can know where we stand with the use of this drug and uh, and and its acceptance in our profession? Yeah, so the two position statements that we're going to base our discussion off of is from the National Association of EMS Physicians, uh, kind of our guiding uh, uh, agency, um, or I wouldn't even say that, right? It's Association uh, for Medical Directors. And this came out with two position statements that we're going to discuss within this was one regarding um, restraint of the agitated patient. And this came out in 2020 as a kind of reaction actually to um, some of the controversy with ketamine and the use, particularly in the pre-hospital setting. And the other position statement is actually the uh, ketamine use in pre-hospital and hospital treatment of acute trauma patients uh, and the application in the pre-hospital setting. So both of these position statements provide us kind of a guide work on how we can use ketamine uh, in our, how would you say? Professional practice, I guess. And, and really where, where, we're pre- where we're protected in using it uh, in those instances that might become high profile cases uh, and really understanding about what's acceptable use and what's not acceptable use. Because there, there probably is quite a bit of gray area on this. 
Uh, and I, you know, I think when you talk about an excited delirium, which we'll get into, you got to remember there's a spectrum of dealing with patients. One, uh, I think a, a lot of conflict could be solved with de-escalation techniques. And I think we've talked about this before. Um, it, this can progress as much as I need to intubate and sedate this person and paralyze them so that I can do an appropriate assessment for medical emergencies. So there's a huge spectrum of intervention on combative patients. And I think Ketamine really should fall far closer to that. I have to intubate, sedate, and paralyze somebody in order to do an assessment than, hey, I just want them to shut up so they're stopped being so annoying. And that's, that's on the inappropriate Absolutely. side of the spectrum. So we'll get into some of that. But this really outlines where we're protected and where we're not protected in the use of it. Exactly. Uh, so, Joel, do you want to cover the mechanism of action of how ketamine works? So it's, it's been called a dirty drug, um, and, and part of that is because it hits on a lot of different receptors. Uh, probably what we know, and, and we know quite a bit about it, but we don't know everything about it. So primarily the mechanism of action is on the NMDA receptor, uh, the glutamate receptor, which is the, um, which is the um, you think about with the brain, you've got uh, glutamate and GABA. Uh, and GABA is inhibitory and glutamate is the excitatory. So uh, NMDA and glutamate. Um, and then there is some opioid effect, um, or I shouldn't say there's some mu receptor effect, which is where opiates bind, but that's with a metabolite of the drug is my understanding. So you get a lot of different uh, you get a lot of different effects from this drug because it hits on a lot of different receptors, hence the term a dirty drug. Um, but with that becomes, becomes a, a, a large um, kind of an array of effect based on doses and how much we give. So you, you actually can get some really good pain control and analgesic effect at low doses. Uh, and then you can get into what's been termed the K-hole by recreational users who kind of find that middle range where they're not completely out, but experience that dissociative out-of-body experience. And then where we tend to use it more in the medical setting outside of analgesia is, and the real true dissociative dosing um, of greater than a milligram per kilogram. Exactly. I think you kind of made some good points there with this being a dirty drug is it's really the dosage that determines the action of what we're trying to target specifically. So kind of moving on is like the adverse reactions that we need to keep in mind with this medication. And one of the key points here uh, that we'll make throughout is that it really, you know, the adverse reactions that we'll see with this is going to be seen at the larger doses and when this is rapidly administered to a patient. So that's something that we want to try to avoid, right, is appropriate dosing as well as a slow push of this medication. And one of the most common, actually, adverse reactions that you'll see with this is vomiting, um, so nausea, vomiting. Um, but one of the most feared ones is actually laryngospasm, um, and that can precipitate apnea. Uh, but that should only be, or it's going to be uh, more commonly seen at those larger doses. Um, so like I said, is that we need to make sure that we're appropriately dosing it, but not also slamming this medication in. Uh, but you can also see hypersalivation, um, and then you can also have an emergency reaction as well. And uh, do you want to discuss what emergency reaction is, Joel? Yeah, so 
there's this um we saw i think this is what's kept ketamine out of the adult uh the adult emergency medicine world for quite a while uh pediatrics tends to see less of the emergence phenomenon but in adults as they come out of the drug there's a lot of hallucination um there can be agitation and and obviously if you're unaware or dissociated from reality uh, it could be a terrifying experience for some people and so the 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 history is that people would get this and then when they came out of it they were violent hallucinating and it becomes a terrible drug to use for adults uh, and the truth of the matter is it takes very little benzodiazepine to mitigate that. Uh, and so although you got to be cautious with administration of benzodiazepines because it is a respiratory depressant, a touch of this actually goes a long ways in terms of um, preventing or augmenting that um, kind of feared adverse reaction yeah. that is so commonly associated with this drug. Another way I've also thought of this too, is that um, I think there's been a misinterpretation of some, some instances of emergency reaction is that it's the underdosing is that where um, there are instances where you think that you're actually giving a dissociative dose, but you're actually hitting the K hole area. So it's actually, there's some instances where you're underdosing. Um, so yeah, benzodiazepines can be a good um, mitigator for this. Um, if you do have an emergency reaction, but actually if you gave more drug, um, you, you further dissociate them, you should be able to take them out of it, which is also a uh, potential treatment for this as well. And I, w- I would say that you're spot on in terms of the dosing. One of the more frequent errors in the use of this drug is exactly that in um, under dosing people where you have somebody who's clearly needs a dose of four milligrams per kilogram IM for excited delirium and they get two IM. Uh, and when I ask people, why, why are you given such a light dose? Um, they're like, well, I just didn't want to use the whole dose because I wasn't real comfortable with it. Exactly. And what you end up doing is getting somebody who's essentially in a recreational phase. Yeah. Which ironically is supposed to be a, a good, it's supposed to, I've heard of people successfully using the lower doses for, um, things like bad asthmatics or people to facilitate non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which I'm, I'm just going to say, we don't, that's not one of the things that we have in the protocols in Spokane, Washington. It's not an indication. So I'm not advocating for it, but this is an area where it has been seen uh, as very successful um, and has some practical application is for the use of uh, facilitating non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And they kind of use that low dose where people are kind of dissociated, but still aware, able to protect an airway and breathe. So there may be, um, there, there is a place for it, but that place is not in, uh, in, in trying to achieve a true dissociative sedation where we need people to be, um, fully sedated. Yeah. And the way, you know, the way that I think of this though, too, is that you look at our protocol. So this is going to be used for OSI and excited delirium, two areas where we're pushing for that dissociative state. So, you know, exactly what you're saying is that it's very important not to underdose them. But another thing that we need to be cautious to is not stack dosing the pain control um, and pushing them 
is that not letting the drug completely metabolize out and then you push them into a subdissociative state and you have this, you know, increase in agitation. Um, so that's something to be cautious as well as it's not just at those higher doses, but you got to be cautious of stacking those lower doses as well. So on that same line of contraindications. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's really, uh, three things that we need to be aware of. Um, so, Part of the protocol is that, you know, we don't administer ketamine to age less than three months. Um, and this is due to the fact that there's an increased incidence of laryngospasm seen in this uh, age population. And then we need to be cautious, particularly uh, in those with significant elevations in their blood pressure and or heart rate, um, which would constitute a serious hazard for that individual. And then lastly, just like any medication, uh, we need to avoid this with those with a known drug allergy or hypersensitivity to ketamine. Which brings me to the question, though. So, so when is it okay to use? And I feel like this was something that, um, interestingly, reading these position statements, um, I was not completely aware because uh, I was taught, particularly in schizophrenia, um, we want to avoid ketamine um, due to this dissociative, subdissociative state. Um, but it's actually okay to use in this population. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I think if you're, if you're using it it's, at its dose, at its appropriate dose for dissociation, you're not going to complicate people who are having underlying uh, delirium agitation related to um, their disorganized thought uh, uh, from schizophrenia. So while they're a really probably a bad population for that intermediate dosing, which yeah. we, again, another reason to avoid that if I need to sedate somebody with excited delirium, who's a known schizophrenic on methamphetamine and violent, just because they're schizophrenic doesn't mean that they are not a candidate for uh, ketamine. So I think understanding why am I giving it and what's the use of it that schizophrenics are not off the list. It's just, we need to be aware of the fact that they can have a very difficult time if in there, if they're in that sub dissociative dose. Exactly. And we're going to be reaching for the medication that's safest for that situation. And, and oftentimes that'll be ketamine. And, right. and then two other ones that I think that we're aware of now, cause there's been a, um, a lot of data that's actually supporting its use in these situations. And the, the position statement actually supports this as well, um, particularly in trauma is TBI patients. It was that, you know, early on it was thought that we should not be using ketamine due to the fear of increasing ICP pressures um, with this medication, but it's actually shown to be safe. So my understanding is that it, it does have some small increase in ICP with the administration of it. And I'm not sure if that's because it has a, uh, increase in, in heart rate and blood pressure. So you just naturally get some increased ICP associated with that, but it hasn't translated to negative outcomes in the trauma patient or head injured uh, trauma patient. So although there's a theoretical increase of ICP, and I think the same thing along the same lines of intraocular pressure, it is not uh, a drug that cannot be used in traumatic brain injury patients. And probably if you have a patient that's severely injured in terms of a multi-system trauma and needs to have an induction agent, ketamine's probably one of your better induction agents for the trauma, the critical trauma patient. So I would not, although you need to be aware of that theoretical risk, Unless someone came to me and they said, look, I got a pencil sticking in my eyeball and a globe rupture and I can't tolerate it. I, I think in every other circumstance, I would say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to 
gamble with intraocular pressure and uh, intracranial pressure effect. Yeah, no, I agree, particularly in those polytrauma patients um, where you're looking for a boost in hemodynamics. But, you know, I would also make the point, too, though, is that it, it has been shown to be safe, is that there is that theoretical risk of ICP increase, but it really hasn't borne out to have, I would say, morbidity effects in these cases, is that this is actually supported within this position statement that isolated TBIs, this is a safe medication to use. So I wouldn't be afraid to reach for this as an induction agent in these situations. Good. I like it. Hey, uh, let's move right into some cases then and try and um, put some practical application to what we've just discussed. That'd be great. So uh, this first case, Joel, is uh, uh, I have a 40-year-old male, history of heroin abuse uh, on Suboxone. He fell uh, striking a parked car, riding a scooter around downtown Spokane, and he has a deformed right femur. Um, so Pain was a pain control was an issue for this patient. So you started off with 50 of fentanyl, and uh, he's still screaming uh, in agony. How would you handle this case? Yeah, so these folks are difficult because if you don't know with Suboxone, it's an agonist antagonist. So it has both an agonist effect of supplying opioids, but it has an antagonist effect um, that kind of takes away the high of it. The problem with administering uh, opiates to people who are on Suboxone is you can actually precipitate some withdrawal symptoms and they very rarely get the analgesic effect desired with opiates. So non-opiate analgesia in this population tends to be, um, I almost want to say a first line choice, which, which kind of goes against what our protocol has in place where we use uh, ketamine as a as an adjunct when opioid analgesics have failed, and and I I think if you want to stay true to the protocol, then I think you give a dose of opiate. If you don't get any effect, you I would say the probably the safest thing to do is just transition to this quickly, as opposed to piling on more opiates on a patient who's known to be on Suboxone, mm -hmm. uh, because your your large doses of opiates may actually do more harm than good. And this is where I really struggle with ketamine as, a, as an analgesic, partially because I'm just a cheapskate and I see a vial of 500 milligrams of ketamine and I'm going to only pull 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. If I got a hundred kilo individual, that's only 20 milligrams. Mm -hmm. Now I got 480 milligrams of ketamine that I technically have to waste because it's a single use vial. So I don't, I, I've always said, don't use this unless you absolutely have a fantastic indication for it because it's an expensive drug and that is a lot of waste. So if you just want to use it to see how well it works for an, for a patient that you want to treat their pain, you're, that is, uh, I think that is a real um, irresponsible use of a, of a resource. Uh, and I would say that's not, you need to keep that in the back of your mind, but somebody who has exceptionally high pain tolerances due to chronic opioids like your like your terminal cancer patient with cancer related pain who may have exceptionally high opiate tolerance um, or your suboxone patient who's on a uh, who's on one of these um, partial agonist medications then Ketamine is probably the drug that we should be going to. Uh, and in the other circumstance, so you got a, a trauma patient here um, and depending on where, what uh, their hemodynamics are, you may transition quicker to this. If, if I got a blood pressure that's soft, because 
I'll have less effect on hemodynamics. So if I'm going to crack open a vial and use it, I'm probably going to want to maximize the use of that. And you talked earlier about stacking ketamine. And I think you got to be careful. This is not a short acting drug like fentanyl. So I'm not going to dose it, redose it, redose it every 15 minutes, right? Generally, it's a longer lasting medication. I would be a little bit more judicious than, um, than with my use of fentanyl in terms of redosing. Cause I think you could get into that, uh, into that um, sub-dissociative range pretty quickly if you stacked a lot of this. What's your thought on that? No, I think that's a good point. Yeah, and and it's just monitoring the patient in front of you. You know, if they if they are in extreme agony, you know, and the the narcotic medication fentanyl, particularly if that's what you're using, is not working, I think ketamine's a a good second option to go to. Um, but yeah, this is generally a longer lasting medication. Um, so so kind of going into that though is what is the dose that you would use to start out with? So I I typically go 0.2 milligrams per, ki- per kilogram. So that's 20 milligrams for a hundred kilo patient. Um, and, and, and then you could, you can redose, but again, I would be cautious in my redosing and I would extend it probably at least at a minimum 15 minutes, probably longer. And again, this, like you'd mentioned earlier, just because it's a low dose, uh, doesn't mean that it can go in fast. This needs to be a slow infusion and it needs to be diluted out um, so that you can actually achieve a slow infusion. If I put uh, 0.2 milligrams per kilo, 20 milligrams of, of ketamine is a tiny little volume. And if I don't dilute that out, there's no way that's going in slow. I just, even if I put it in a 10 cc syringe, it's hard for me right. to hold something in a 10 cc syringe longer than about two minutes, you know? Exactly. So it, dilute it out and administer it slowly. That's the right way to do it. Yeah, I'd agree. And then, and then kind of your anticipated as adverse effects from this, right. Is that, you know, at these lower doses, um, you're, you're typically not going to be seeing the laryngeal spasm. You, um, you know, if you're not hitting the sub dissociative dissociative dosing, you're not going to be seeing emergency reactions, but the most common is going to be the nausea and vomiting that we need to be aware of. So one of the things that you, you mentioned here is that, you know, being judicious with your administration of ketamine. And one of the things I do want to point of caution though with this is combining ketamine with opioids um, is that we do see an increase in side effects. Um, so how, how, do you, how do you address that with, with, with the medics here? Well, well I think one is it's just that you need to have effective communication when you have handoff um, of patients, right? If you just say you gave ketamine, but then you didn't tell us that you gave opiates, you still have a strong respiratory depressant on board. And we may continue with other agents, um, particularly if they need analgesia or uh, sedation for a procedure, where we're going to supply additional potentially respiratory depressing drugs. And if all we hear about is that they had ketamine, but they also got a pretty hefty dose of fentanyl beforehand, you know, the effects of that are additive. And, And we know that we know that we can have, um, anytime you start mixing drugs together, you're going to end up kind of broadening the side effect profile and the adverse effects. So even at low doses, when I combine it with other agents, you got to be cautious. It's the same caution I would give anybody who says that they want to give a benzodiazepine and an opiate. Um, and what's your indication? And have you, have you spaced these out far enough in time that they would not be considered to be a co-administered medication. Because if you're giving sedation in the field, then you have crossed over into 
um, practicing outside of uh, your scope um, as a as a paramedic, right? You can give benzodiazepines and you can give opiates and you can give ketamine, but you cannot provide conscious sedation. And when I start combining these agents together, then that qualifies as conscious sedation in a lot of ways or could be interpreted that way. And with a bad outcome, I think that's hard to protect unless you can say, I separated the dose and time. I gave the analgesic for, I gave the opiate for analgesia. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety or agitation, and I gave benzodiazepines for agitation. And, and I would say that probably you should just stay away from it altogether when possible of mixing these agents um, unless you unless you have an airway. That's a good point. And I think, you know, kind of kind of going to the basics here, too, is the monitoring of this as well. So if, you know, I, I'm a bit advocated. I don't know what your feelings are on this of entitled CO2 when we administer these medications, particularly anything that could have uh, respiratory depression or alteration in their mentation. Um, so just a, just a plug in using that um, to keep a closer eye on these patients when we are administering, um, particularly multiple different medications. Okay, I'm going to give you a case now uh, on the use of ketamine as an induction agent. So we've got a 55-year-old female motor vehicle collision head-on with evidence of polytrauma. We find her with an initial GCS of seven, uh, two for eyes, uh, two for motor, and three for verbal. Pupils are dilated and sluggish reactive. She's got an obvious head contusion, an obvious seatbelt sign abrasions to the extremities, initial vital signs, have a heart rate of 125, blood pressure 90 over 60. I'm always bothered when the blood pre- when the heart rate's higher than the systolic blood pressure. That always bugs me. Yeah. Uh, and O2 saturation, 99% on room air or on a non-rebreather and a respiratory rate of eight. So tell me uh, how you would approach this person and specifically how you'd approach it for with uh, induction for OSI. Yeah, that's, this is a, a, a messed up patient. Uh, there's uh, evidence of polytrauma with head trauma is kind of the way I like to break this down. And, and as you already pointed out, you know, it's always troublesome when the heart rate is greater than their systolic blood pressure, um, looking at a shock index here. So they're in, they're in shock here. And so one of the things that I always like to approach prior to actually pushing an induction agent is, is optimizing this patient, right? So we need to be getting IV access on them. We should have some fluid infusing in them, um, trying to improve their hemodynamics before we push an induction agent, which would bring us to, you know, our choice of induction agent for this individual. And as we talked about earlier, you know, I, looking at um, one of the things we try to avoid ketamine in you know, is those with severely elevated blood pressure and or heart rate because ketamine causes those effects in patients. That's actually what we want in this individual. We want a bump in their hemodynamics. So I'd be going with ketamine in this, um, you know, and then choosing your dosing um, is always going to be interesting. But, you know, for following protocol here, it's going to be two milligrams per kilogram. Um, then keeping in mind, even though we're doing this as an induction, this is a slow push um, over about 60, 60 seconds here. Yeah, and I think one of the important things to bring up is a lot of the adverse effects that we worry about with this drug. Um, You had mentioned vomiting, laryngospasm. Remember, in in the setting of induction for OSI, this is going to be very quickly followed by a um, paralytic, which is going to mitigate or at least... um, 
specifically for laryngospasm, it should help mitigate some of the laryngospasm. And if, and if I can, um, if I can get them sedated and intubated, the best thing to do for somebody who has a risk of vomiting is to protect their airway, which I'm absolutely already now committed to and halfway down that line. So I would say if the things that make me worry about ketamine in this person really should be allayed by the fact that I'm going to paralyze and protect their airway. That's a good, that's a good point, you know, and, and one of the things you hear out there is rapid sequence intubation, right? And you don't slow push those medications. Um, just a consideration, you know, and not necessarily for this one though, is that more delayed sequence intubation, you know, where you're looking to preserve their airway reflexes and not induce laryngospasm would be a consideration for a slow push. But I totally agree, you know, we're following up the induction agent with a paralytic. And so if they're not going to laryngospasm, we're causing their, uh, their spontaneous respirations to cease on their own. And we're going to cause apnea in this situation. So that's not something that I'm too concerned about as well. The, you know, we talk about, um, what, one of the benefits that we believe is, um, the purpose behind the, that whole optimal sequence intubation philosophy is to protect against, uh, hypoxia. And, and this is one of those people, clearly a head injured polytrauma patient. Remember our increase in mortality in people who suffer from hypoxia, uh, in the, uh, in the pre-hospital setting, we, there's good evidence to say that they potentially double their mortality. So this is someone to take your time and do it Absolutely. right. Make sure that this person is pre-oxygenated. You don't have to slam drugs in and get it and get a tube. Exactly what you said. I, I absolutely agree with you. This is someone who needs to be pre-oxygenated. This needs to be a very calculated, uh, and, um, optimized in a way, right? Is that, you know, cautious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think a good way of it is that, you know, you point out the hypoxia here. Um, but you know, you talk about your hop killers when it comes to just intubation in general. And so we do see an increase in morbidity and mortality in those associated with hypoxia, but also hypotension. And then lastly, it's acidemia. So if we're not optimizing these patients, you know, we can choose the right medication every time, but if we're not, if we're not um, optimizing them from a hemodynamic standpoint, oxygenate them, uh, you know, we're going to be doing ourselves and our patients a disservice. Um, but one thing I do want to point out with this case too, though, right, is that this is polytrauma with TBI. And we did mention this earlier is that it's safe in these situations. Um, so, so this would be somebody that, you know, we're looking for a boost in the hemodynamics and choosing this, but I'm not concerned with the concomitant TBI to avoid this medication in this situation. Yeah, you know, it's this is a perfect patient for ketamine as an induction agent. And I, you know, I I'm a little bit jealous of the people that are kind of raised up in this environment where ketamine and etomidate are taught as equivalents because I I was not taught that. So I got comfortable with etomidate and in a high stress situation, I always go to etomidate, right? I've had to force myself to use ketamine where ketamine is most appropriate. And I think in this circumstance, ketamine is most appropriate. And uh, I wish I had been taught to use a fork and a spoon at the same time when I learned to eat, but I didn't. I was only taught with a spoon. So I ate all my salad with a spoon for so long. And then someone gives me a fork. I got to remember to eat my salad with a fork, right? I mean, it's such a better drug in this circumstance. Yeah. And I think those of us that were trained and raised on Atomidate have, have, um, 
we're missing an opportunity to diversify our our the tools in our toolbox by not using this drug when it's most appropriate. So I have to force myself to use it until I get comfortable using a fork to eat a salad. You know, I mean, that's a terrible analogy, but, but it's so true. I think that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. And then one other thing I'd just like to point out too, is just with any induction, you know, is following the, the successful placement of the tube is that, you know, that we're following this up with other medications, right? Um, treating the, their pain, their analgesia, but also making sure that they're persistently sedated, um, having a piece of plastic through their vocal cords. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, but yeah, let's move on to excited delirium. All right. So, um, this is, uh, last and final case here, um, that I'll present to you. And I have a lot of several, well, several questions that, um, regarding this case that we'll, we'll delve into, but here we start with the case. So, um, you're, uh, called by actually PD, um, down to downtown Spokane. There's a 33 year old male who's running naked in the street and smashing car windshields with his fists. Um, so it's a chaotic scene. Uh, the police are, are uh, basically at their wits end. They don't know really what to do in this situation. They're looking at a safe way to manage this case because um, this individual seems to be posing a threat to himself and others. Um, so uh, let's suppose that you're the medic on this run, uh, Joel. Um, how would you approach this? And what would you call this situation? So... So this is, yeah, this is excited delirium. To me, this is excited delirium. What I see is um, a highly agitated uh, individual who is not going to respond to non-pharmacologic intervention, right? I'm not going to talk this guy down. Uh, And he's at risk to others and he's at great risk to himself, Mm -hmm. mostly because of the profound acidosis that we see in people who are this agitated. So to me, this meets the criteria of Mm -hmm. excited delirium, which is difficult because it's not really a psychiatric diagnosis. What we consider a psychiatric illness, it, it really doesn't have a, I mean, I can't diagnose somebody with excited delirium when I admit them to the hospital, right? I mean, that's a, it's not recognized by the, by the, organizations that define what constitutes an illness, but it is recognized by people that work in the field and particularly has been recognized by ASEP since 2009. And it's actually modeled after a condition described in veterinary medicine called capture myopathy, where they would have animals in a cage that fought in the cage so profoundly, they became so acidotic that they went into PEA arrest and would die. Um, And so it, it kind of gets its moniker from that to a degree, um, but is, mm-hmm. but is, I think a recognized medical emergency. And I think that's the key part to this is this is not somebody that I just want to get them to shut up and calm down, right? This is somebody who, if I can just talk them down and make them quiet and bring them in, then everything will be okay. This is somebody who's potentially suffering from a real medical emergency. So, You have public safety as a problem, but I think at the forefront of your mind and what, and what drives your decision-making is this is a patient with a critical illness uh, and potentially a fatal illness. And, and, and most of these people are going to die from, when we talk about H's and T's, they die from 
uh, hydrogen ion acidosis. They have a profound, profound metabolic acidosis. In fact, I had a guy just the other day, very similar case, except he was headbutting windows instead of punching windows. And he came in in a PEA arrest and he had a pH of 6.85, I believe. And that was not from guys, guys that clutch their chest and hit the ground and got two minutes of CPR don't have a pH of 6.85. They, they went down with a pH, a normal pH, 7.3, 7.35, right? This guy went down because he was acidotic. He didn't become acidotic after he collapsed. Yeah. The acidosis is what causes it. So they are very, very, very sick and they need to be treated aggressively. Uh, and so that would be on the forefront of my mind. This is someone that I would absolutely want to use ketamine. And obviously, uh, my IV dose of ketamine is off the list, right? Because I'm not going to establish an IV. If you have, that should be a red flag. If I had an IV, then and, and somebody in a gurney with an IV, and I want to call them excited delirium, something, there should be alarms going off in your head that that doesn't fit the criteria, Right. This is someone who needs an IV, or or they're or they're being inappropriately restrained in right. a way, right? It's that they're they're pinned down, and that and that and you're you're making matters worse in that situation. I would make an absolutely. argument, absolutely, um, absolutely. Which is a, that's a good point, though. Is like have an IV, yeah. yeah. So so the vast majority of the time, this will be a this will be an IM administration of ketamine for the full dissociative effect. I don't want to get a sub dissociative dose in this person. I want them out. And so the dose is four milligrams per kilogram with a max of 400. So that potentially is going to give me eight cc's of ketamine, right? And and the, the trouble you run into is all the nursing literature says you can only give five cc's into a muscle group at a time. Yeah, I get it. Um, but I might have one chance and, and there has been proven time and time again that you can give way more than five cc's into a single muscle group. So if I got one chance, I'm going to do the full eight cc's into uh, a vastus lateralis or wherever I can. If it's a big deltoid, I'll do it there. I don't care if it's the glute, I'll do it there. You can put that needle through their genes if you need to. Um, the goal is to get them dissociated. So, so that not just so that you can bring them in it's so that you can initiate care of their emergency medical condition immediately. Right. That's, so that's a good point. Yeah. You want full set of, full set of vitals, absolutely full set of vitals on this person. As soon as possible, I want an IVN and I want fluids running on them. And and so kind of taking a step back here. So you talked about the acidosis. What clinical features are you are you seeing in this patient? Like so we talk about we talk about agitation, right? Um, you know, kind of painting a picture of what these patients are going to be manifesting physiologically, right? And as is a manifestation of their acidosis, right? So they're going to be they're going to be revved up, right? So they're going to be tachycardic, tachypneic, hyperthermic a lot of times. Um, so, so you say a full set of vitals, what kind of monitoring are you going to be initiating right away? Um, and then I, you, you said IV with fluids going, so kind of just delving in a little bit of more of that and what each component is really addressing. Right. So obvious, right. So vital sign abnormalities that I expect to see, they're going to be tachycardic. They're going to be tachypnic. They're going to be hyperthermic. Um, remember, I think one thing to be very cautious of 
Think about people with profound metabolic acidosis, right? What is their breathing like? It's rapid and fast. It has to be because they're compensating. So anything that I do that interferes with their ability to ventilate, their ventilation is not purely driven by the fact that they're amped up. Some of that ventilation is driven as a compensatory effort to mitigate the acidosis. So if I do things to restrict their ventilation, then I'm potentially exacerbating the acidosis. And in in my opinion, I think if you had real-time physiology, like monitors hooked up to people that have died in custody from excited delirium, I will bet you, and I can't prove this, but I feel strongly that, that when a lot of these cases get called asphyxia, And I don't think it has anything to do with not getting oxygen and everything to do with them not being able to compensate for a profound metabolic acidosis. That when we pig pile on them and we restrict them or we hold them down in a way where they can't breathe effectively to ventilate, their acidosis gets profoundly worse. Their pH plummets and that's when we see PEA arrest. That's my theory. I can't prove it, but I would be very, very, very cautious about ensuring that people can breathe rapidly, uh, large volume, and do all the things they need to to compensate. So um, pay attention to vital signs. And then IV, and I want to run fluid. These people are profoundly acidotic. How do we manage acidotic patients? We allow them to ventilate, or if they cannot ventilate, we ventilate for them, and we start to resuscitate. And this person, we resuscitate aggressively with crystalloid. Expect to have entitled CO2 monitoring that suggests a respiratory or a metabolic acidosis with respiratory compensation. I expect to see an entitled CO2 that's very low, 25, 24, right? Uh, All the vital signs that go along with that. And I'm going to treat this person just like I would treat a bad DKA patient, really. I'm going to give them a lot of fluid and I'm going to allow them to ventilate freely, right? You don't see us restricting ventilation on DKA patients because we understand how important that is. Why would we do it on this metabolic acidosis? That's a good point. Very good point. So to kind of summarize there is that you're saying is that once you get control of the situation and you have them chemically restrained, is that you want to position them so they can adequately ventilate, uh, get them on the monitor, get full set of vitals, and then if able, get end title on them as well and, and, and work to get an IV quickly to get fluids going, right? So you're addressing their acidosis, um, you're exposing, um, and you're allowing them to let the body basically kind of compensate on its own. Um, while we assist uh, with the other issue, mainly their profound acidosis. Is that correct? Yeah. And I would even go so, and I, anybody that knows me from, from my agencies will tell you that I'm not a big advocate of early administration of bicarb and cardiac arrest. This is a scenario where if I had somebody go into PEA arrest, bicarb would be one of the first things that I pushed. Um, just because that's, that's a good point, recognizing that they are dying from their acidosis and that needs to be corrected rapidly in the setting of PEA. So I, this is one of the exceptions where I would give early bicarbonate in an arrest. And, and I would also, um, mention too, though, is that, is that 
a lot of times they're they're deteriorating so quickly because they're not compensating. So because they arrest, I these are this is a situation that I hyperventilate, um, and you want to try to do that for them throughout the arrest as well. So you administer bicarb. If that's not being ventilated off, then you're actually going to make the pH worse. So it's good recognition of that. But I would say is that we got to make sure that we're controlling those ventilations as well. Yeah, this is not somebody where I this this is this is very different from your. Um, acute coronary syndrome, V-fib arrest patient, um, it, who we want to uh, we want to optimize perfusion because they've got a bad pump. This is not the. This is totally different person. This is somebody, and I don't even exactly. I, I would argue that you can't ventilate them as well as they could ventilate before you intubated them, and so you almost want to delay yeah. intubation on profoundly acidotic people. Uh, until they can no longer provide any ventilatory effort. I mean, you almost got to let them fail before I want to intervene just because I can't ventilate as well as they can while they're awake and breathing. Compensate. No, that's a good point. You know, and then if you do, if your hand is pushed to uh, actually manage this airway, which is it's a nightmare situation, it's like intubating a decayer, as you were mentioning earlier. Um, this would be somebody that I would consider actually bagging through the apneic period as well, um, if you're pushing paralytics, uh, because any time that they are not breathing on their own, their pH is going to be just dropping on you. Absolutely. Um, this is a very scary situation. Um, and some of the sickest patients that you know, I have seen has actually been an excited delirium that these people can actually die on you in a blink of an eye. Um, and it's frightening, um, and it's very rapid. Uh, but as long as you can anticipate what their physiology or physiology is doing and what you're going to be doing to alteration of their physiology, um, you can hopefully stave off, um, them actually arresting on you. Um, but this is a very real situation. I, I think one of the really important things to take away is the, is the severity of illness that we're trying to describe here. If you show up in the ER and you've given somebody 400 milligrams of ketamine and you don't have them on a monitor and you don't have IV fluids going in and you don't have temperature and entitled CO2, then you gave ketamine to the wrong patient yeah. in my mind, Right. If, if, if they were not sick enough that you needed to have that level of intervention, then I don't, I question whether or not they even need ketamine in the first place. That's the population that we're talking about. It's on the spectrum closer to, I have to intubate, sedate and paralyze this patient so that I can get the appropriate imaging studies because they're so agitated, right? I mean, I'm far closer to that category than I am. This person just won't do what I'm asking them to do. Absolutely. Right? These are Absolutely. sick, sick people. They have to be treated like they're sick people. Yeah. And, and I do want to make a plug to you. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here is actually discussed, um, with a position statement from NAEMSP. Um, and we'll have this for reference for people that want to flip through that document. One thing I do want to mention here though, is that uh, a lot of the stuff in the media as we talked to and we first um, introduced this topic was the controversy associated with ketamine. And there was actually a really good uh, panel discussion um, of some, I would say renowned physicians in the EMS world that discuss ketamine. This is in November of this year, actually, um, just as they put out this position statement. The one thing I just wanted to point out here is that ketamine is safe. 
of 1,800 patient records that they looked at uh, involving mortality data, there were only six deaths in which ketamine could not be excluded as a possibly possible contributing factor. So although, yeah, that could be that ketamine contributed, that is a low percentage um, and an overall safe medication, I would say, as long as you're doing everything that you know, you discussed, Joel, is that you're you're anticipating what is going to happen to these patients, and we're doing everything we can to mitigate that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So um, kind of to round out to summarize this all, you know, um, I think the, the first thing is, is, is pretty apparent is that dosing determines the effect. And for our protocols, you know, we have three indications for this. So our pain dosing, uh, our induction agent dosing for OSI, and then the cases of severe agitation or excited delirium. Um, with escalating doses for each of those indications. And then looking at our adverse effects of this is that one of the things that we predictably said is that, you know, it's the larger doses and rapidly administered doses that we're going to be seeing um, the more severe adverse effects, particularly that being laryngospasm here. Yeah, I would say the other thing that uh, we should reiterate is the uh, be cautious when you're combining this agent with other Uh, sedatives, uh, including opiates and benzodiazepines, communicate what's been administered in conjunction with ketamine uh, when you hand off care. Um, And then we also want to know about other ingestion. I mean, not every ingestion is going to be something that you delivered, right? So we want to know what the patients are on too. If they're on methamphetamine, if they've had a lot of alcohol, if they are had opiates of their own, uh, and before you found them and, and communicating that information to us and then being aware of what drugs are on board, legal and illegal, uh, is going to be very important when you decide uh, when and uh, the most appropriate time to use these powerful meds, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then lastly, you know, is one of the big takeaways is I was reading these position statements here is like knowing your contraindications, right, is that age less than three months you know, we want to avoid due to uh, increase in laryngospasm. Um, and then avoiding this medication in those with significant elevated blood pressure and or heart rate, and then obviously those with allergies. But more importantly, what I took away from this is that it's okay to use this in cases of uh, TBI um, or if you're concerned for globe injuries. And then particularly the schizophrenic patients here is that um, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. This is a safe medication. Um, and, and you're kind of going back as you were saying is that this is a medication you didn't train with. Well, during my training, this dates me is that this is actually a medication that, uh, was ubiquitous during my training. Um, so I'm very familiar with this medication. I'm comfortable with it. Um, but I feel that as pre-hospital providers with the indications that we're using it, we all need to be comfortable with this medication because it's out there. It's going to be more readily available. It's safe. It's very effective. Um, and I'm a big fan of it as long as it's appropriately utilized. I have. I can say that I have become a big fan of it, uh, and I'm and since incorporating it into my practice uh, personally, I think it's a fantastic drug, and it's always better to eat salad with a fork, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So I would encourage anybody that's listening to this that if they have any questions, let us know. Um, and we'll address this on future podcasts, um, as well as any topics that you guys want to hear, let us know as well. All right. Be safe. I think next topic will be discussion of um, presser agents. Uh, so you can look forward to seeing that. 
All right. Be safe. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Spokane County EMS podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you can get new episodes when they become available. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, email us at scemspodcast at spokanefire.org. This podcast has been a production of Spokane Fire Media Services.